This is Digital Pathology Today. Now here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. Our guest today is one of the giants in the field of digital pathology and image analysis. And if he has seen further than others, he will tell you it's because he himself was able to stand on the shoulders of giants as well. His unique multidisciplinary approach has allowed him to break down silos and see across the often artificial self-imposed barriers and distinctions imposed by academic disciplines and patient treatment paradigms. Welcome to Digital Pathology. I'm Joe Anderson. We're talking with Professor Anant Matabuchi, Professor of Biomedical Engineering, Radiology, Pathology, Urology, as well as Radiation Oncology, and Director for the Center of Computational Imaging and Personalized Diagnostics at Case Western Reserve University. We're going to be talking about silos in academic departments and disease states and how looking beyond these limitations can propel progress. What exactly is image analysis? What have we been able to do with it so far? And what predictive and prognostic information can we unlock from histologic features? And finally, how can image analysis and non-tissue destructive computational and AI-powered methods help to democratize access to care and lead to better outcomes for patients across the world? Want to take a deeper dive into the world of pathology and laboratory medicine? Intrigued by immunology, histology, cytology, molecular pathology, and more? Check out the Pathology Grand Tour, a 12-issue limited podcast series available from all major podcast distributors. Hosted by the pathologist, the tour features voices from every stop on the medical laboratory map. Ever wondered how your colleagues in forensics actually spend their days? Or how infectious disease specialists are reacting to COVID-19? Or what the latest developments are in genetics and genomics? Get your answers straight from the source on the Pathology Grand Tour. Available wherever you normally get your podcasts. Or visit the tour online at thepathologist.com slash podcast. Professor Anat Matabushi, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to finally have you on at last. Uh, you're making such a big splash in the world of digital pathology. So tell us a little bit about the work you do at the Center for Computational Imaging and Personalized Diagnostics at Case Western. So I'm a professor of biomedical engineering at Case Western Reserve University. I've been here nine years. I also direct the Center for Computational Imaging and Personalized Diagnostics. I should also maybe do a shout out to my other appointment, which is at the Lewis Stokes Cleveland VA, where I'm also a research health scientist. But between my positions at Case Western and the Cleveland VA, our group is focused on developing and applying novel artificial intelligence, machine learning, image analysis technologies from the context of cancer diagnostics, actually I should say disease diagnostics, but beyond disease diagnostics, also trying to be able to predict disease outcome, trying to predict therapeutic response. And the main philosophy of our group, I would say, is finding novel interpretable ways in which we can find sub-visual attributes, sub-visual features or patterns from routine, routinely acquired data. I'm talking about pathology images, but also radiology images like CT scans, MRI scans, that can really provide information above and beyond what a pathologist or radiologist might be able to visually prize out from this data. And some of the fundamental questions that we've been asking is what kind of patterns when mined from these images could really not just help address the question of absence or presence of disease like cancer, but in the context of the 40% of adult men and women who are going to be diagnosed with some form of cancer in their lifetime, how can these approaches, how can these 
subvisual patterns mined from pathology images as well as radiology images enhance our understanding of the management of these patients? Can we come up with better management strategies based of risk stratification, based of outcome prediction, uh, finding cues with regard to the likelihood of response to certain therapies? If we were able to do that with image analysis, with machine learning, using digital technologies in a non-destructive way from pathology and radiology images, now how could that potentially make a dent in precision medicine? So in sort of a, in a nutshell, that's really what we are trying to address is how can we push the envelope on precision medicine in modulating management strategies and treatment strategies for patients with not just cancer, but a variety of different diseases with novel, non-destructive digital technologies, AI technologies. Yeah, non-destructive. I like that word because I think that's one of the great promises, I think, at least for digital pathology. Much of the work we've done in pathology has been tissue-based and tissue is scarce, as we know, and it's consumed and it's precious and you have to be very careful how you're going to use it in terms of both research and even in managing an individual patient. Oftentimes, you know, you hear horror stories of patients having going having to go back to the OR two or three times. I mean, even one time too many is a nightmare in terms of the impact that's going to make uh, in terms of recovering from surgery just to get extra tissue because it was mismanaged by by the physicians involved in the case. So non-destructive, I think, is a, a huge benefit to what we do and the approach you take. So you said something also, not to go off on too much of a tangent, uh, but kind of about the core of personalized medicine is obviously managing patients appropriately. One question people have is, well, are we finally going to turn the corner in terms of healthcare becoming cheaper? We have all this great technology, but it gets more and more expensive. Why is that? You know, a lot of it, I think, you know, is like we're getting very good at looking for more and more things and finding more and more things and identifying risk factors and identifying early disease. So it becomes more expensive because people then have to get treated, right? Obviously, something's wrong with you. Now you need to get treatment. But are we finally going to turn the corner knowing that there is perhaps we may be at risk for overdiagnosing patients and overtreating, right? So is is any of this work going to help us tailor the therapies in terms of saying, hey, you don't need treatment at all. We found this thing you might be at risk for, but we're actually going to save money by managing you more effectively. I would say that a few different things that we need to think about, and certainly some of the various things that we in our group have been thinking about over the years, have been the fact that diseases like cancer really know no boundaries that this is really a global issue. In fact, just this morning, I was reading about the increase in cancer incidence in Africa, how over the next 10 years or so, cancer is unfortunately really going to increase in incidence in many parts of Africa. In the United States, like I mentioned, about 40% of the adult population will be diagnosed with some form of cancer in their lifetime. Even though we've become much better in treating and managing cancers today, the fact is that we are over-diagnosing and over-treating a number of cancers. And that has real implications for healthcare. It has obviously patient toxicity issues related to it. We are treating a lot of patients who could possibly avoid aggressive treatments like radiation or chemotherapy with some of these more aggressive forms of therapy, these interventions have real harm, patient-centric harm, but there's also the very real issue of financial toxicity that a lot of these perhaps in many cases unnecessary interventions 
bring along with them. Some of the staggering facts that I only became aware of over the last couple of years, something like 42% of newly diagnosed cancer patients face the risk of bankruptcy, which is just an unbelievable statistic. And so there are a couple of things here. One is we know that a lot of the new therapeutics, but also existing interventions are extremely expensive. And we know that in many diseases like breast cancer, early stage breast cancer, in the context of prostate cancer, we know that if the cancer is found early, then a lot of patients with early stage breast cancer or more indolent prostate cancer don't actually need the more aggressive therapy, the more expensive intervention. They could avoid the radical prostatectomy, they could avoid the chemotherapy, they could avoid the radiation therapy. So that, I think, is a big opportunity. And I think I would almost say that that is almost incumbent on groups like ourselves to be thinking about how can we bring non-destructive digital technologies to bear on routinely acquired tissue images, tissue pathology, to be able to now provide information that goes above and beyond just the cancer presence or just the grade of the disease or just the stage of the disease. How could we identify which of these patients have you know, more aggressive versus indolent disease and therefore help modulate the treatment and help, or therefore obviate potentially the need for the more aggressive treatments or chemotherapy in a lot of patients? The second piece of this, and you mentioned a very important point, is that we have more technologies coming along, but these are expensive. One of the things, one of the visions that our group has had and one of the guiding philosophies of our group has been, now how can we innovate in a way that makes things also lower cost? The fundamental idea for a lot of this happened about 12 years ago when, when I was working with a breast oncologist at the Cancer Institute of New Jersey and we realized that the technologies we were developing for breast cancer grading, automated breast cancer grading from pathology images were useful for the pathologist, but as an oncologist, it didn't really benefit uh, Sridhar Ganesan, the breast oncologist I was working with. And he said, Anand, if you could apply your technologies to the breast pathology images and tell me as to who could avoid chemotherapy or not, that's a big deal to me. To me to do that today, it's an expensive tissue destructive molecular test that I need to call on. And one of the things that we've been doing uh, in a very focused manner over the last few years is how can we possibly compete with more tissue destructive molecular-based or gene expression-based tests that really level you know, the playing field a little bit. We know in a lot of low-middle-income countries, they don't have ac access to these more expensive molecular-based tests to try to identify who needs chemotherapy or who needs more aggressive treatment. These are tests that cost thousands of dollars. But could we possibly provide that kind of information on guiding treatment selection in a way that is non-destructive, but also orders of magnitude lower in cost by doing this solely of a digital image of an H&E slide and not needing more fancy, uh, more sophisticated, more complex technologies that probably would make the, the technology out of reach of most people, certainly on a global scale. That is an incredible story of looking to spare patients from the more aggressive therapies. And it's interesting how it's evolving. I think we were, I like to say, we were in the desert, so to speak, between about 1985 to 2005, where in terms of patients with early stage breast cancer, the recommendation was treat everybody. We knew that resulted in a massive over-treatment, and yet there were no good tools 
to identify who would or who would not benefit when the absolute benefit was about 4%, meaning you have to treat 100 patients <laughs> and only four. I mean, I chuckle, but it's it's tragic that really only four could derive any benefit. And then with these new molecular tests, we were able to make a huge dent in that and, and offer better course of disease for, for most patients to identify patients who could be spared and then also treated appropriately. But as you suggested, those molecular tests were, they consumed a lot of tissue and they're expensive in the thousands of dollars. And so I think as we focus globally, how can we make these technologies or these tools available to patients on a more cost-effective way? So, and I think, and not consuming the tissue. It's an evolving story, and I, and I think it's really wonderful. You have appointments in several academic departments. There's the tendency, I think it's human nature or the nature of medicine or what we do, is silos evolve. There's silos between the various departments, and they're often artificial distinctions based on practical considerations maybe, but pathology and radiology, I mean, what's the difference? We're, we're both looking at images, and I think as radiology begins to inject more molecular tracers and markers into patients to visualize in vivo and pathologists start doing more invasive things and in vivo microscopy. I think the lines are certainly going to blur, but you know, but once you're looking at the images, many people would say, oh, that's just, that's an artificial distinction. I think even within pathology, you know, say in breast cancer versus prostate cancer, there's different terminology or colon cancer. And one, you would have carcinoma in situ. The other one, you would have high-grade dysplasia. Um, there's clearly different treatments for patients. It's practical and realistic based on what was studied in the large-scale clinical trials, but it's silos, really. And so in your experience, what benefits have you seen interacting with various departments, various disease states, various patient groups to, to help bring down these silos? Or one, do you think silos is a huge challenge? And two, how can we get around it? It's a very, very relevant question today because more and more we're starting to recognize that, like you said, these silos in many ways are quite artificial, they're synthetic, they force us to think of these disciplines in very disparate, divorced ways. When the fact is, from a patient-centric perspective, it's really about integrated diagnostics. At the end of the day, really what we're all trying to do is to be able to provide the clinician with the most integrated, complete representation, the complete picture of that individual's disease profile. What we're also recognizing is that with artificial intelligence today, we're able to prize out, like I said, more information than can be visually gleaned from this data. And so if you've got a thoracic oncologist who's looking at an early stage, stage 1B patient with early stage adenocarcinoma, and that oncologist is trying to figure out, well, should I be treating this patient with adjuvant chemotherapy or is this a patient who is going to benefit from just surgery alone? Why would one only look at the pathology? Now, every one of these patients is going to have surgical resection. These patients are going to have a CT scan. And so the question that we've been looking at is, well, you know, I think the, the, the advantage I have is that since I was a bioengineer and was trained as a bioengineer, I didn't necessarily have to live in pathology or radiology. The fact that I was unfettered allowed me to think in a slightly more liberal, unconstrained kind of manner. And so for a number of diseases today, when we think about AI, when we think about developing prognostic or predictive tools, we are looking across the spectrum. So our group is looking at integrating pathology images with radiology images for better characterization of the severity and the aggressiveness of prostate cancer. 
developing prognostic but also predictive tools in the context of lung cancer where we're taking digital pathology images of surgically resected specimens or biopsies and combining it with radiomic features or radiomic patterns that you're getting from uh, CT scans, similarly in the context of breast cancer where we're trying to stratify uh, risk of breast cancer patients and figure out who will benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy versus not. We're looking at possibly combining features from MRI scans along with patterns from H&E images. So I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of these distinctions are artificial. More and more as we start to think about what is right for the patient, we have to think in an integrated diagnostics manner. And the good news is many schools, many departments are starting to appreciate this and starting to move in this direction. And I think UCLA, the University of Pennsylvania, just to name a few, and right here in Cleveland, I know university hospitals are starting to think in a very similar fashion. You know, How do you start to think about diagnostics really in an integrated way? And there's a suggestion also that down the road, we may be approaching a time where we're starting to think of even residencies or training in a more integrated fashion. Myself as a bioengineer, I think the big opportunity is the combination of information. Why would you not combine all the plurality of data that exists for a given patient in order to really prize out the maximum possible information to drive the most informed decision-making possible for how that patient should be managed? So that's sort of the the way I look at it. And of course, I will also say that the advantage of working in many different disciplines and having secondary appointments in many different departments also, for me as a bioengineer, has really enhanced my understanding and appreciation of many, many different domains, many different specialties, many different disease sites. So I'm, I'm really, in some sense, very truly sort of a jack of many, many trades because I've managed to pick up a little bit of syntax, a little bit of the lingo, a little bit of the, the, the context of the problem from many different perspectives. And that multilinguality, I think, really is critical for a bioengineer like myself or somebody who's working in AI in, in the context of digital pathology. You know, being able to work closely with pathologists, being in a pathology department, being also at the same time having a secondary appointment in oncology is really critical because now I'm able to synergize and appreciate information that I'm getting from my pathology colleagues, but at the same time from my oncology colleagues as well. And I think the one thing that I've really learned is the the importance of this multilinguality from different disciplines. In fact, you know, I joke a lot with my uh, colleagues in different departments, my clinical colleagues in different departments, saying that you know, to me, the the biggest compliment is when I go and give a talk. And somebody comes up to me after the talk and says, uh, you know, which pathology department are you in, right? For me to then pass off as a pathologist is testimony to the fact that my masquerading as a pathologist is, is convincing. It's compelling. It means that, you know, this experiment, this, con- this, this idea of integration of information, integrated diagnostics is, is succeeding to some extent. That is a very intriguing idea, integrated diagnostics. I know uh, the television show House, he worked in the Department of Diagnostics. <laughs> and I think, <laughs> and I think you know, once people actually go into medicine, they might be sorely disappointed to find there is no such department. <laughs> there are many individual departments that do diagnostics. So what is the promise of H&E? This has been our domain as pathologists for the last hundred years or so, ever since we invented or <laughs> deployed the light, the light microscope. Just even the idea of when we first got the microscope, the first pathologist probably had no idea that 
there was variability in tumors, right? And then some said, well, this, these are really ugly tumors and these are more indolent looking tumors. We're not even sure if this is a tumor, if this is benign or malignant, right? And so it kind of, it kind of evolved. And then maybe by the 1920s or 30s, they figured out, oh, the way this looks, the appearance of this tumor under the microscope correlates with outcome, how this patient's going to do. And we can break it down into discrete features such as nuclear nuclear size, architecture, uh, and, and mitotic rate, and so on, and those can correlate with outcome. Even the subcomponents can correlate with outcome. You know, pathologists have led the way, and then it seems H&E morphology has somewhat taken a backseat to molecular, maybe in the last 20 or 30 years. We've developed new and important molecular tools, but are we poised to see a, a resurgence of H&E morphology and really the the information we can extract from that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's my personal bias, but I just think that the evidence is quite overwhelming. I think 20 years ago when myself and a few other groups started to work in digital pathology, there were very few of us. I mean, I recall nearly about 15 years ago where I had submitted a proposal talking about how with artificial intelligence and H&E and tissue morphology alone, we could predict the underlying molecular underpinning of the tumor, we could predict benefit, added benefit of adjuvant chemotherapy. I remember getting a reviewer saying, this doesn't make any sense, that I was essentially that I was crazy. It's interesting to see today, there's so many papers, high profile papers coming out, showing that morphology can actually under, you know, predict mutational status, can predict in response to therapy. And I think it is a reflection fundamentally what pathologists have known for the longest time. Like I said, a lot of those omics that we talk about, the genomics, proteomics, it's all there. It's all ultimately reflected in that H&E slide. So I think that there's no question that that H&E slide and the morphology there is extremely powerful. But what we're starting to see is very tangible ways in which AI can unlock that information and start to really help in very meaningful ways. Just a few examples from our own work. One of the areas we're working on is head and neck cancer in P16 positive oropharyngeal uh, squamous cell cancers, where, of course, we know that the vast majority of patients will do well because of the advantage conferred by the HPV positivity. Therein lies the rub. We are potentially over-treating a number of these HPV positive patients. And so one of the questions today is, could we de-escalate or de-intensify therapy in some of these patients? And we just put out a paper in the Journal of Clinical Investigation about a month ago where we demonstrated in over a thousand patients that we could actually use AI with H&E images to be able to risk stratify HPV positive oropharyngeal cancers much better, suggesting that we could now identify that subset of patients who really have much better outcome and could therefore be candidates for de-intensification therapy. We're doing similar work in the context of, of lung cancer. I mentioned some of the work we're doing in breast cancer and, and, and prostate as well. So I just think that there's going to be more and more evidence emerging and we're going to start to see examples in many, many different use cases across the board that the morphology is really critical. And in fact, I would argue it's not just oncology. In fact, we just put out a paper in European Heart Journal where over 2,500 biopsies working with collaborators at the University of Pennsylvania, we were able to show that AI from endomyocardial biopsies could allow us to identify cardiac projection, identify the cardiac rejection grade, and identify which patients were high likelihood for rejection versus not. And so I am so convinced that we're going to start to see 
an increasing number of applications being applied to areas that had not been thought of before, where these kinds of digital image analysis and AI tools will not just help the pathologist, but will really start to help the clinician make more informed decisions for therapeutic treatment decision-making. Right. Anant Matabushi, we have so much to talk about. We'll probably have to have you on again, but that's an interesting uh, distinction you made there in in non-cancer related disease states, inflammatory conditions and so forth. I think maybe that's a dirty little secret is that oncology is perhaps more high profile. Everyone realizes the impact we've all everyone has either had cancer or has family members or friends that have undergone the journey involved in cancer care. But really, that's just the tip of the iceberg or in terms of complexity, you know, not to make light of it. I mean, that's pretty easy. Is it cancer or not? But, you know, there's a whole world out there in terms of inflammatory diseases, transplant, so much to talk about. But let's just bring us up to speed on some of the tools that you use to do these investigations and studies in a non-destructive way. Uh, using using H and E images, so just a, a few of the basics. Um, what do we mean when we talk about image analysis? You know, maybe back in the early two thousands, there was a tool that could quantify cells that were brown or not on immunohistochemical preparations. There's got to be a tool out there that measures the size and shape of a nucleus and you know, what percentage of the cells are forming glands, but really at the core of it, what are we talking about with quantitative image analysis? Uh, to do that justice, we probably need to do another one hour long call, but, <laughs> but I'll, try to, I'll, try, I'll try to give you the, the elevator summary here. Just a few things that I just want to maybe put out there. One, I think we hear a lot about AI and image analysis and digital pathology today, and we forget the fact that to quote Newton, if folks like myself and, and other folks working in this area have seen Further, it's only because we've had the advantage of working on the shoulders of giants. People like Judith Pruitt, who had been using image analysis for microscopy images back in the 60s. There's a long, rich history of application. This concept of image analysis is not a new concept. It's been around for a while. Now, what has changed, I think, is the fact that we've evolved from just using image analysis to quantify biomarkers or look at just measuring morphometric attributes, to then coupling these measurements, these biomarker features with machine learning. So I think fundamentally over the last 15 years, what has really changed is that machine learning has come along. That has allowed us to use features or attributes that could be gleaned with image analysis to then help prognosticate outcome and predict therapeutic response. Now, when we think about machine learning, you know, a large part of what is happening in machine learning today is what is called deep learning with the use of neural networks to analyze images. The challenge with deep learning, of course, is these approaches generally tend to be fairly opaque. They're, for better or for worse, they tend to be labeled as black box approaches. Our group, on the other hand, tends to take a slightly different approach. We're actually using image analysis as a way of prizing out interpretable features that then go into the machine learning to be able to make the predictions. Just a couple of examples. You mentioned breast cancer. One of the things that we're doing with breast cancer is looking at attributes of things like collagen fibers, looking at mitotic figures, counting tubules, looking at features of the nuclei or nuclear pleomorphism. And so by computationally quantifying attributes of the architecture of collagen and mitotic figures and all these various attributes, we're now able to create a quantitative set of interpretable attributes that resonate with people who are well-versed with the domain 
And by coupling that with a machine learning approach, we're now able to start to make predictions of outcome or treatment response. But because what's going into the machine learning algorithm is a set of discrete measurements that are intuitive and interpretable, the prognostic predictive algorithm is so much more interpretable to the end user and you know maybe a clinician who's using these approaches. Another example is work, uh, we, like I mentioned, in head and neck cancers that we just recently put out. What was driving the prognostic algorithm for risk stratification was multinucleation, essentially working with Jim Lewis at Vanderbilt University. Jim, a head and neck pathologist, had identified several years ago that when you saw these large cellular aggregates in head and neck cancer pathology images, that that was a bad hallmark. And so what we did was we trained a machine learning algorithm to go in, find the multinucleation, and using quantification of multinucleation, we were able to demonstrate that we could do risk stratification. So, you know, you mentioned 100 years where pathologists have been looking with light microscopes at images. There's a, there's a huge brain trust there. There's a huge amount of information. There's a huge amount of domain expertise. And so we in our group have tried to really tap into some of that brain trust, into that domain expertise, and then use quantitative approaches and computational models to convert that into numeric measurements that can then help inform on prognosis and prediction of therapeutic outcome. But at the same time, what we're very cognizant of is preserving the interpretability and the intuitive aspect of these tools. Because you know, at the end of the day, if you want to have a clinician using these tools and make a decision as to who should get chemotherapy or not, they're going to have to understand how the algorithm came up with that prediction and what was driving that prediction. It can't be a black box. It has to be interpretable. It has to be intuitive. And when we first uh, started talking, you said something about mining the unseen features. And that immediately reminded me of, I think, in episode three of season one of this podcast, we had Ajit Singh, who's done a lot of work in digital pathology, and he kind of alluded to something similar, looking for the unknown unknowns. Or maybe that was Donald Rumsfeld when he was talking about the uh, the Iraq war. Um, but it, but hearing you talk about the collagen fibers in breast cancer, right? It's clearly there, but it's not part of any formalized diagnostic criteria. And the experienced pathologist uses those cues. I mean, I remember when I was in training, you know, that was a big thing. Like glands, breast glands that are tightly wrapped up with collagen are probably going to be benign, right? But when you see tumor cells slicing through there and the collagen's becoming looser, that's perhaps portends to a, a significant change in outcome. We know uh, there's markers such as ecadherin that tell whether or not the cells are adhering to each other, which is possibly related to their ability to invade or cut through the collagen. So we're finding those things that might not be quantifiable I like to think of it as there's kind of the Sherlock Holmes versus the Doc Watson approach in pathology, right? You have Sherlock Holmes who has these, just these great epiphanies and these grand theories, but they're not scalable, right? So you may be fortunate to get your biopsy interpreted by Sherlock Holmes, but probably the rest of the field is like Doc Watson, kind of going slowly and methodically based on verifiable studies. Is that one of the goals is to suss out these maybe intuitive things or things that are there in plain sight, but not readily quantifiable at this point? Well, there was a lot in there. So let me try, let me try to, um, to hit up some of those things uh, that you just mentioned, Joe. So one is, uh, it comes back to what I said earlier about working across the silos, working with people outside your discipline. You know, one of the things that I've really enjoyed working in the area of computational pathology over the last two decades 
has been the ability to work closely with pathologists. And so as a bioengineer, what I've tried to do is try to figure out what my blind spots are. And of course, there are so many blind spots. I acknowledge those and I look at my conversations with pathologists as learning opportunities. And I'm trying to listen and trying to pay attention. And one classic example, before we go to the collagen fibers, one classic example I'd like to recount was when I was still a graduate student at Penn, I got to know Dr. John Tomaszewski was then the vice chair of pathology at Penn. And I would watch John describe prostate specimens and prostate pathology images. And one of the things that he would talk about is, you know, as I saw him explain morphology, when I would listen in, when he was explaining to his residents about prostate morphology, he would talk about all these vectors. He would show them, you know, the prostate specimens and he would say, look at these glands. And you can see that you know, all of these glands you know, have a certain directionality. They're all sort of more or less in the same direction. If you look at uh, this region where, you know, the glands are more disturbed and incoherent, uh, then that's that's where the cancer is. And so in trying to listen to that, um, it got sort of the bioengineering part of me thinking, you know, how can you quantify that? You know, what what we've just heard, what I just heard from John was, was absolutely, was good. The question for me was, how do you take that, domain expertise and convert that into a quantitative feature, a quantitative descriptor that was scalable, that was prognostic. And so we came up with a concept of finding a way to define the directionality of individual glands. So there was an image analysis where we segmented out the individual glands on prostate pathology images, assigned a directionality to the individual glands, and then essentially borrowing a concept from high school physics, namely the concept of entropy, we were able to capture how discordant those vectors for the individual glands were. So essentially, what we found is when those vectors were all pointing in the same direction, the entropy was low because there was order in the system. On the other hand, when those vectors were discordant with respect to each other, the entropy was high and essentially you had cancer. In fact, we then demonstrated that the higher the entropy, the more aggressive the cancer, the less the entropy, the less indolent the cancer was. We borrowed that idea and then took it to collagen fibers and used it to essentially capture the architecture and the orientation of collagen fibers. And in a paper that is coming out in Nature Breast Cancer shortly, we've demonstrated that this entropy feature characterizing the architecture and the organization of collagen fibers is linked to survival in, in early stage ER positive breast cancers, where if you see a high entropy, those cancers actually tend to do better. If the entropy is low, then those cancers tend to do poorly. And it's sort of counterintuitive to what we found on prostate cancer because the order, the coherence of the collagen fibers in early stage ER positive breast cancers actually portends worse survival. And that's possibly because uh, you know, it allows for migration of the disease from the primary site to other locations. And, and the fact that you've got sort of a highway that's that structure that's ordered helps in that migration. But if the collagen highway is more disordered, more chaotic, it really makes it more difficult for migration from the primary site elsewhere. So just back to your original question, I think that a lot of this is, again, I come back to working across groups, working with pathology colleagues, you know, bioengineers, computer scientists, working with pathologists, working across the board. Uh, really trying to figure out what kind of intuitive, interpretable features that reflect attributes of the domain that can be quantified and then can be used to inform these machine learning algorithms. So that's sort of the, the approach that we've taken. 
what I've noticed is, or clearly, there's a few features, right, that pathologists need to make note of when they're looking at the case. So for breast, it's the number of mitoses, the percent that's forming glands, and uh, the grade of the nucleus, right? And it seems like as human beings, we can, you know, and for prostate, you're looking at, you know, how much, what's the Gleason pattern? What are the two primary Gleason patterns? Is there a tertiary pattern and, and so on? But it seems like as human beings, we're only able to deal with a finite amount of information, or even if there, or once we get to the edges, we don't trust it as much, right? If you, if you would say, well, you know, Dr. Smith, I'd like you to assess the collagen pattern in the breast, <laughs> right? That would be a, that would be a disaster for a human being to do. So is it that the uh, machine learning tools or the image analysis tools are better or they're just, or human beings could ultimately become good at this kind of stuff, but it seems like we're much more likely to trust it if it is spit out of an algorithm rather than a pathologist uh, looking at it. Why is that? Great points there. I think just a couple of things. One is I think generally as human beings, we're good with first order statistics. To some extent, we can do second order statistics, but not so much. In other words, what that means is that if you're looking at trying to get rough estimations of just the amount of something, we do a pretty good job. But once you get into higher order statistics, in other words, if you're looking at the arrangement of things, then it becomes very difficult as human beings for us to quantify that. But I think that's the opportunity. I think as pathologists, what pathologists recognize for the longest time, the money is really in architecture, right? It's tissue architecture, it's tissue arrangement. That's really where the money is. And so the opportunity here is how can you start to use computers to go in and prize out those higher order statistics? One example, lymphocytes. Let's talk about lymphocytes, tumor infrastructure lymphocytes. You know, so many different cancers where we know the tills and the quantity of tills is important. What our group and others have started to show is that, well, till quantity, till density is important, but potentially what is even more important is how they're arranged. And the spatial statistics relating to the arrangement of the tills with respect to cancer nuclei provides even more informed measurements about outcome, about treatment response. And so pathologists can do a pretty good job with the rough estimation of the amount of the density what they are really challenged to do is to be able to talk in any quantitative way about how these cells are arranged, but that's where the computers excel because the computers can break this down using algorithms from network theory and look at graph networks and provide quantitative descriptions and measurements of precisely how these cells are arranged. And that provides complementary information to just the number or the density alone. So I think that's sort of where the, the complementarity you know, comes about. But I, I do think that as with the machine learning algorithms where we're starting to make more discoveries, I think it opens up an opportunity for pathologists to start to look at those particular areas. As one example, the Gleason grading paradigm has been around for a number of years, recently got an upgrade, right? Um, no pun intended. The, the change was significant in the sense that cribriform patterns, which had not really played a central role in the existing grading rubric now really has taken more of the center stage. And of course, pathologists have long recognized the presence of these sort of poorly formed glands and these fused glands before. But I think it's, it's the awareness that, you know, our reading, our interpretation, as more data has come in, that we've had to go in and expand out the current lexicon for recent grading. And, and that, that resulted in the change. I think that with machine learning algorithms, as machine algorithms make more discoveries and find new primitives and find features 
and find information in, in, in those parts of the image where pathologists may not necessarily look, that there is an opportunity to expand the existing rubrics, the expand, expand the existing lexicons for grading and start to incorporate some of these machine-derived features. One example, in a few years, we put out a paper with uh, the Johns Hopkins group looking at trying to prognosticate recurrence in prostate cancer and men with prostate cancer. What was interesting was we looked at features not just of the tumor itself, but actually looked at tumor-adjacent normal regions or benign regions. And interestingly, we found that nuclear architecture in the tumor-adjacent benign regions was more prognostic of outcome, in this case, biochemical recurrence, compared to the features that came from the tumor alone. And in fact, more recently, we followed that up with a paper showing that in African-American men, the stroma appeared to capture the most prognostic information. You know, I think it's, it's interesting because, again, the machine has identified it. There seems to be something there. It's not part of the existing rubric that pathologists use for grading. But maybe that's something there. Maybe now, as, as we validate this in larger and larger studies in multi-institutional way, it might be a way of going back to the existing lexicons and, and modifying them and sort of using machine learning uh, to, to, to possibly change the way these images are looked at or reviewed. Expanding the rubric. So much rich, so much rich information there. And then how can we change how these images are used. So I think, you know, it's not so much having the machines do what we do, what we're already doing, but better, because I think we're pretty good at it already. But it's like, how do we mine that all of the other things that we're completely overlooking, or we don't even know how to go about looking at. So once we develop these tools, getting the right patient on the right treatment is really the, the foundation of personalized medicine or precision medicine. But another aspect is, you know, democratizing aspects to care, making these technologies available globally or treating patients across the world in a more cost-effective manner. And certainly there's reports of shortages of pathologists. Many countries in the world have little or even no pathologists. How is this approach uh, going to help us there? I think that for me, what is very critical and really at the, at the heart of a lot of the motivation for these technologies that we're developing is the potential impact that these technologies can have in a global context. So part of that stems from the fact that I'm an immigrant, grew up in India, and was very familiar, very aware of the limitations of expert pathology in India, and of course, many other parts of the world. And so I look at these technologies as potentially being a huge decision support but also an opportunity to really help bring precision medicine to low and middle income countries like India, you know, like parts of Africa, like parts of uh, Latin America. We have a number of ongoing projects, one of which I'll just briefly mention, which is with the Tata Cancer Center in Mumbai, where over the last two or three years, working with uh, Vani Parmar, who's uh, the chief of breast surgery at the Tata Cancer Center, and Sangeeta Desai, who's the uh, chief of pathology there, We've been trying to develop and validate algorithms for identifying which early stage ER positive breast cancer patients will benefit, will receive added benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy. Now, like I mentioned at the start of the talk, there are tests out there that can help address this issue, but they're too expensive. Uh, just by way of context, the cost of chemotherapy in India is roughly in the ballpark of $2,000 per year per patient. Uh, the cost of some of these molecular tests to be able to identify whether or not you should get the chemotherapies is twice that. 
And so what we're trying to do is by using features or patterns just from a pathology image, could we figure out for pennies on the dollar compared to these molecular tests, whether somebody really will receive added benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy or not. And of course, one of the other things in low middle income countries is the fact that it's not solely from a toxicity perspective. There's also the very real issue of a shortage of resources. And in, in countries like India and elsewhere, you there just may not be enough and a sufficient arsenal of chemotherapy or radiation therapy to be able to address all the patients. And so it's not just the patient toxicity that these tools aim to avoid. It's also the fact that you've got a very limited amount of uh, therapeutic ammunition, so to speak, uh, for, for patients. And so, you know, using it in a very, very judicious way becomes really, really critical. Now, another piece of this is being able to deliver those technologies to uh, these various countries. And so some of the uh, work that's happening, for instance, uh, out of uh, Dr. Rad Singh's group, uh, Path Presenter, where he's developed this digital pathology platform uh, to, with the global footprint. Uh, you know, I believe uh, this, this pathology platform, which started as a research education tool, now is in, in over 180 countries. Uh, what we're trying to do is working with uh, Dr. Singh and, and others, trying to figure out ways where we can couple these digital technologies with uh, existing digital image platforms to then be able to deliver these technologies uh, to uh, places like India, to places like Peru, to places like South Africa and Uganda and Tanzania, and really just provide, like you said, the democratization of these tools. Because the fact is that, you know, you should be able to figure out, you know, a, a woman with breast cancer um, should have access to tools that can tell her whether she has more aggressive breast cancer, meaning she needs the adjuvant chemotherapy or not. And, and that should not be, uh, you know, solely for folks who can afford, you know, a three or $4,000 test. And so I think there's really a, a critical need to be able to create these, these low-cost, digital, non-destructive tests. The cancer incidence in Africa and in parts of Asia is expected to grow significantly in the coming couple of decades. And so there's going to be more and more of a need and more stress on the resources in these countries and more of a need to judiciously use the existing uh, therapeutics that they have. That is a worthy goal. So regardless of where someone is on the planet, can they have access uh, to the best predictive and prognostic information for the appropriate treatment. Well, our guest has been Dr. Anat Matabushi from the uh, Center for Computational Imaging and Personalized Diagnostics at Case Western. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe Thanks for listening.